Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So this is a daunting task. Uh, we've got two really, really big and important books that we're going to discuss today. And I can't, what I really want to do is like have dinner with each one of the authors and talk for you know two and a half hours, maybe have a couple of glasses of wine. I'd rather do that than try to cram all the stuff into one hour, but we're going to try to do that because that's what we do. Uh, we do radio. We don't We don't actually have dinner for a living here. So um, joining us first will be as Evan Osnos, who's been with us uh, numerous times before. His new book is Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. Uh, and a little bit later, we're going to hear from Samuel Moyne. His new book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Um, there's actually some really interesting and nice overlap between these two books uh, in a certain way. But uh, let's begin with Evan Osno, staff writer at The New Yorker, CNN contributor and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Uh, and as I say, we are here to talk about Wildland, the making of America's fury. Evan Osnos, welcome back to our show. Thanks, Colin. It's great to be back with you. So I'm going to uh, have you summarize your book in a second. But I think I'm going to instead, before we do that, I'm just going to um, it, it's sort of weird. While while you're reading this book, while one is reading this book, stuff just happens all around you that that just kind of confirms the central premise of the book. It's like uh, it, it's like the Evan Osnos book tour and American reality in October of 2021 are kind of pretty much the same thing. So let's let's look at something that happened uh, this week, just a couple of days ago. Uh, yeah. It it it's a, a um, uh, an encounter that happened. Uh, at an event called, by an organization called Turning Point USA, which you write about in the book. Uh, and you mention this guy, Charlie Kirk, who's kind of a conservative activist who specializes in try, sort of taking the conservative, conservative message to uh, college and high school-aged people. Uh, so he's doing an event, and he gets this question, A2Cat. At this point, we're living under corporate and medical fascism. This is tyranny. When do we get to use the guns? No, and I'm, and, I, and I'm not, that's not a joke. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, literally, where's the line? How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? So, no, I, 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 no, hold on. I, I'm, no, stop, hold on. Now, I'm going to denounce that. I'm going to tell you why. Because you're playing into all their plans, and they're trying to make you do this. That's okay. Just hear me out. All right. He goes on a bit from there. But, like, you know, I'm almost looking for the page number in your book where that happens. Of course, that's impossible. Uh, but but so let's just sort of use that as a, a kind of a wedge uh, to get into some of the issues of your book, because I think you'd agree that guy uh, who's asking that's rather alarming question in a very normal tone of voice uh, is yeah. very much part of the fury you're, you're writing about. So react to him first. And then we can talk about what Kirk says, too, because that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's such an extraordinary moment if you really step back and kind of pretend for a moment that you just landed from Mars in, in this country at this moment, 2021, and you turned on that audio and you heard a political conference in which somebody was asking, as he put it, when do they get to use the guns? It is this fusion in a very kind of now 
naked and um, obviously sort of tragic way, this fusion between the language of politics and the language of existential conflict, of, of warfare, of fighting, of kill or be killed. It's a, it's a very bizarre turn in, in the rhetoric of American politics. But as you indicated, I think, Colin, you know, if there was one thing I learned from this book and from working on it for these years, um, it's that this didn't come in a hurry. It didn't come from nowhere. It's been building and building. And if you go back and begin to look at it and look for it and find the origins of these moments, in effect, um, there was alarm bells ringing for us long before January 6th or before you got a, a piece of tape like that, that that's where we were headed. Yeah, and I'm sure you saw, it was a couple of Sundays ago, I think, the New York Times did a thing where they pulled seven participants um, in the January 6th uh, insurrection, and, and they were all people, uh, I think they were all men, facing charges. Um, and But what was interesting about all of them is that none of them was a member of the Proud Boys or a militia. Uh, right. they, at most, they were maybe one or two of them were maybe QAnon curious, but not like, you know, died in the wool. They were sort of I wouldn't be surprised if that guy, you know, when do we get to use the guns guy? The people in his town may just think of him as a guy who, I don't know, maybe listens to a couple of different radio shows from what they yep. do. But like what, what, what the theme that ran through that New York Times piece is similar to your book, I think, which is these people don't have horns and really sharp teeth. They are just people who are reacting in a certain way to to a certain group of conditions that they are possibly misinterpreting. But I'd love yeah. to hear you say more. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I started to do, which is sort of an odd thing, an odd area of research for a political reporter, was that I started going to gun shows about uh, now about five years ago. Uh, in the course of my work at The New Yorker, I decided, you know, in order for me to understand what's happening in politics and in, in what at that point was the emerging um, kind of proto candidacy of Donald Trump, I had to go, for instance, to the National Rifle Association convention and just talk to people about how they experienced American life. I mean, what was it that they imagined threatened them? Why did they think that they needed to have the guns in, in in this way? Why did they, who did they imagine was coming to get them? Um, and this kind of idea, it became quite clear over the course of that reporting that actually a lot of the, a lot of the chords, a lot of the sort of kind of political notes uh, that were being strummed were very recognizable to me from having followed around the Trump train for a while. And so that was, there was something, and I think what's what's interesting to me about it, Colin, is that it, it's the product of a kind of political technology, by which I mean a set of instruments, um, rhetorical techniques, and um, quite literally, in some cases, the technology of influence that we see on social media and, and in digital culture. But the reason why I broaden the term is that I think it's it's sort of overly convenient um, this is by no means exculpatory for the social media companies. They deserve the scrutiny and the criticism they get for trafficking in this stuff. But it actually confines our view if we think that the problem is simply the pipes. It's also the problem of what we're putting into the pipes. And there has been over the course of what I would argue has been essentially 40 years, um, as I describe in the book, of this acculturation of political language 
um, to the language of existential conflict of death. And there's just no other way to put it. And you just heard that in the clearest terms uh, in a, in a pretty chilling way, I have to say. Um, I'm glad you I'm glad you played it. Well, you know, I want to also say we, the the Charlie Kirk response is a little bit abbreviated, but but it's enough of it's there. First of all, he invokes a kind of formless they. And he says, right. you know, I'm going to denounce you because you're playing right into their hands. Uh, you're giving them, uh, you know, an opportunity. And he even says, and they're they're trying to make you do this, which yeah. is a very interesting exemption of responsibility for this guy who just proposed an armed, armed attack on some other group of they. But it's interesting who that, first of all, it's interesting who that they is. I mean, he's yeah. talking about some nameless, formless power structure that, uh, you know, that that both does and doesn't exist, right? That's essential to the mindset. I mean, the notion I mean, at the at its core, what we're talking about is a political philosophy that organizes the world into our group and the other group, the the they group, and it goes by different names. The they group, in some cases, is the Democrats. It's liberals. It's the term that is now in vogue on talk radio, uh, conservative talk radio, is leftists. But this idea that it is, or it's the government that wants to come and take your guns. I mean, this is the idea that is very dominant and is at the core of this. And I think what's sort of interesting, if you really listen to that moment, is that what Charlie Kirk was saying was, don't don't play into that narrative that they, quote unquote, have of us, which is that we are belligerent, that we are on the verge of pulling the trigger. And what's fascinating is if you listen to talk radio, as I have been doing in the course of research, one of the things that comes very clear to the fore is that the next step in that is that they are putting you up, they're manipulating you or even infiltrating our group in order to, and this is one of the arguments you hear about January 6th. Very common argument right now on conservative talk radio is that January 6th was in fact goaded by, uh, perpetrated by informants for the FBI who were leading otherwise good, good-hearted people down the, the, the wrong path. And so that, that notion of infiltration is an essential feature of in the study of conspiracy theory there is this really elegant bit of language which is known as the fact that conspiracy theories are self-sealing meaning that they seal the holes in themselves that mm. you know if that you essentially if there is a hole in the logic then you use this conspiracy to seal it so if somebody says well this doesn't make sense to me then the rebuttal is well that means that you've been deceived by the cover-up and if somebody else says well where's the evidence then you say, well, the evidence has so obviously been suppressed. So this is the kind of political mindset that is the subject of my book. How did that become the dominant mode of some of the most powerful political organizations in the United States? See, one of the things that I would say, if, if somebody asked me to summarize your book you know, in a sentence or two, I would say that it's a book about how America's ultra-rich became ultra, ultra, ultra rich, kind of at the expense of everybody, of everyone else. And, you know, wealth is to some degree a zero-sum game. And then persuaded a lot of their victims that they, the victims, had been victimized by other sets of very improbable exploiters. So in other words, you know, this incredible right. concentration of wealth that you document so uh, so well um, is, in fact, depriving people of all kinds of options. And the stories that you tell, the very human-scale stories you tell are just so great in kind of demonstrating that. But at the same time, there is a mechanism that's set up to convince those people who are getting screwed that they are getting screwed by 
immigrants, uh, Antifa, uh, I don't know, you, you could do the list better than I could, but it seems as though one of the big things about your book is this kind of false assailant um, narrative that protects the actual assailants. Yeah, there is this, there is this wonderful pattern of, of history, which is that, you know, essentially uh, there is this, there is this way in which, um, there is this way in which the, um, the, oh, sorry, I just had to close the door. The, <laughs> there is this, some of these things are ancient and then some of these things are modern. And the ancient pieces of this are that it's not a new thing to have greed, obviously, in our economy. It's not a new thing to have self-enrichment. And what is new is the way in which these things have been optimized or kind of refined to the point that we have economic systems that allow, um, that allow parts of the population to get rich so much faster than everybody else that it actually changes the chemistry of how we associate with one another as a political commons. That's where I think the link is. I mean, I think you identified something essential here, which is at the core of this book, I'm looking essentially at how the economic transformation of the United States affected our political culture and all of the ways that it flowed from there. And, you know, look, I think, Colin, one of the things that, you, that a person is thinking about when you're undertaking a book like this is where do I where do I focus? Do I look at do I look at race or do I look at class or do I look at economics or do I look at politics? And I had this moment as an author, a kind of you know, a bit of a daunting realization early on. I said, I don't have the luxury of picking one of these if I'm really trying to understand for myself how we got here. I have to put these into relationship with one another. How do they all fit together? And so, uh, you know, my, my editor sometimes joked as we were working on it, he, he said, this is like the whole enchilada book. And I said, yeah, I guess it is. It but, kind of uh, is. I mean, I, I agree. <laughs> it, it's, and I, I think one of the things that kind of saves it from being too big an enchilada is the fact that you do focus so much on very, very human stories. We should say that these stories are located in Greenwich, Connecticut, West Virginia, and Chicago in the main. Uh, and, and they're very, very different kinds of stories. Uh, we're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Evan Osnos. The book is Wildland, The, Makings, the Making of America's Fury. We'll be back in just a second. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, uh, we're back with Evan Osnos, the author of Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. So, you know, I said at the beginning of our conversation, Evan, that while I'm reading your book, it sort of feels like the book is reading me or something. So I'm, I'm sitting in a chair reading your book yesterday, uh, and my phone, my cell phone rings, and it's a number I don't recognize, and I take the call, and it's this woman, and she wants me to interview a candidate for a, bo- a write-in candidate for Board of Education. And I'm mainly thinking, how did you get this number? But I'm also thinking, right. well, I said, well, I don't really do that kind of thing and whatever. And then she starts talking to me. She starts talking about um, vaccine and mask requirements as being evil. She starts talking uh, about how they're teaching Buddhism uh, in the schools where she lives. Uh, and then she goes into kind of um, some stuff that I can kind of a little bit identify with a little bit a little bit more about essentially corporate welfare and, and the rich orchestrating everything. Anything, anyway, what was interesting was that the Board of Education in question was the Greenwich Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, does like, Evan Osnos have my house bugged or something? Does he, <laughs> like, um, but I mean, this stuff is, it's kind of everywhere. But what was interesting was after she, you know, she went through all this kind of what I would consider to be kind of crazy and somewhat destructive stuff. And then she yeah. started talking about corporate welfare. And I said, well, here, I can I can jo- right. I, I, I can join you here because I think you're correct that an awful lot of government aid is getting directed at people who are already very rich and who don't need it, and we're constantly trying to bribe companies to stay in the state of Connecticut. Um, and this is something that you've really looked at too. There's a way in which the 2008 global financial meltdown was an opportunity anyway for people who are getting screwed by wealth accumulators to get kind of a look at it. But it seems as though the lesson that might have been taken away from that was not fully embraced. Say something about that. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, in some ways, if if you had to pick the moment in our political chronology when um, you saw the origins of some of the things we're talking about today, it was exactly the moment in 2008, the financial crisis, because that gave rise to two different phenomena. On the one side, you had the Tea Party, which in a way was a response partly to the financial crisis. If you listen to the language of what they were talking about, there was, as I tell in the book, uh, there was this argument that people, uh, the quote unquote true Americans, were being asked to pay for the mortgages that somehow dis- sort of, um, undeserving Americans had taken on and and that this was um, Obama's fault, and it was a reflection of a failure of his leadership. And then wrapped into that, let's we have to be clear here, and the data all bears this out, there was a lot of questions around, uh, there was a lot of elements of racist thinking that Obama was, in a sense, um, betraying Americans um, because he was the first black president and so on. So that was one of the phenomena. And then there was another phenomena, which of course was the Occupy movement. And the Occupy movement was also a response to the financial crisis and was very blunt about the uh, ways in which the 1% had um, rigged the system to hurt the 99%. And 
I think what's fascinating about that is those two worlds would re- describe one another as mortal enemies in many cases. And, you know, they, they kind of gave rise to two very different types of politics or would associate themselves with two very different politics. You know, the Tea Party was the prehistory of Donald Trump and the Occupy movement eventually gave rise to the success of Bernie Sanders as a person who changed the nature of the Democratic Party conversation. But what's amazing about it, Colin, as you so rightly identified, was the financial crisis was the moment of that. It was the moment when you kind of peeled back the surface of American politics and economics and got to see how things were running. And it was really disturbing to people on both the left and the right. And we're still dealing with the consequences. Yeah. And I just I just want to, in a way that might interest you anyway, say that one of the places I see this, I'm continuing to see a lot of this stuff is here in Connecticut. Uh, yeah. and, and you know Connecticut pretty well. And so, you know, our, our governor, Ned Lamont, who I think is on balance a good governor and essentially a pretty fair-minded guy, a guy certainly tried to do the best he could during the the pandemic. And I I welcome his leadership on stuff like that. But he is part of the ultra rich. I mean, he is like part of, you know, 1% probably doesn't even quite cover the level that he and his wife uh, are at in terms of wealth. Uh, And, you know, when he was forming his cabinet in 2019, newly elected, he picked for his Department of Economic Development, czar, a guy who had been very, very involved in Goldman Sachs in exactly the packaging uh, up of sick derivatives, sick and ailing derivatives, and the aggressive marketing of the marketing of them, while even in the same breath, Goldman Sachs was betting against those kinds of products, going short on them, unbeknownst to the people that they were marketing these products to. Um, and so I made a big, as a columnist, I made a big squawk about this, like three columns, and everybody just sort of said, yeah. Well, get over right. it. Get over it. Right. It was 13 years ago or whatever. Uh, you know, forget about it. Um, and and similarly, a, a guy that you write about in the book, you know, Ray Dalio uh, was brought in uh, and, and volunteered to come in to donate huge amounts of money to energize Connecticut schools. But at that time, they wanted to get public monies involved and form this group that would include a lot of public officials. And, and Ned Lamont announced that it, as far as he was concerned, that – group did not be, need to be responsive to FOI requests. Right. I remember that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it really amounted to at a certain point, well, if you ha- put enough money into the kitty, you don't have to obey the law anymore. And yeah. I know I love to have you. Re- I mean, to me, and I don't think Ned's a bad person or anything, but he really, as a rich person, has a blind spot about this kind of stuff. And I think a lot yeah. of the people in your book do, too. Yeah, I think you, you hit on something important. I'll give you an example about I, I at one point I quoted um, I quoted Ned Lamont when this was before he was governor. He was actually talking about the financial crisis. And he used this piece of language that was quite, it was sort of, it sounded like a cliche, but was in fact a fascinating little insight. He said, you know, the financial crisis really has been like a hurricane in, a, in our community. He was talking about Greenwich and then sort of more broadly, um, you know, what we could sort of describe as the financial suburbs. Um, and I think what's fascinating about that was, a hurricane is something, and he was describing the way in which people had been, uh, some people had lost their jobs, 
in the beginning of the financial crisis, and it was very disruptive. And I don't mean to minimize the impact on people who were affected in, in, in the finance world. But what he was revealing was something incredibly interesting, which was a, a hurricane is a meteorological fact that befalls you. And you have no <laughs> way of understanding what your role was in contributing to it. By and large, you don't have ownership over it. You don't feel as if you were responsible for it. <laughs> and it also comes and goes. And then you begin the process of rebuilding. And I was really struck by the way in which that one, it occluded the, the ways in which the finance industry had, in fact, you know, portions of it had very much kind of contributed to what the financial crisis was and the devastation it wrought. But then it also gives us a little insight into the way in which the financial crisis was felt very differently in other parts of the country. And when I go to Chicago and tell the story of particularly one family, the mm -hmm. Clark family, and how they lost their house from uh, a bogus mortgage, basically, that was the product of that period of Wall Street innovation, we, one of the people who lived in that house, Maurice Clark, walks me around the neighborhood and, and points out all the houses that remained vacant all these years later after the financial crisis. And I realized, I was thinking about Ned Lamont's comment, and I realized that it wasn't like a hurricane in that neighborhood. It was like climate change. It had this profound change. The financial crisis had left a durable and almost permanent stain on the financial prospects of people in that place. They hadn't gone about and begun the rebuilding as they could have in places like my hometown, Greenwich. Yeah, that guy is, I would say, or nearly a terrific character, except he's not a character. He's a real person. But uh, yeah. he, I mean, he's worth the price of admission all by himself, just uh, his perspectives, given the life that he's had to lead. We, uh, there's not enough time to sketch all that out right now. And anyway, I, I really feel like you, people just read this book. There's just incredible n narratives, personal human narratives in it from all these places. So, you know, and we're running out of time because we've got Samuel Moyne coming up. Uh, and there's some really interesting ways in which your book bridges into his. Um, but I just maybe... I was going to ask you this question and, I, and, we, and sort of to trigger a kind of comprehensive statement about the book, but I can see that it's too facile, but I'll ask it anyway. So when January 6th happened, when the, United, when the Capitol was being stormed, you know, I, I had to go somewhere in my car and I was still listening to the live coverage on NPR and I suddenly started to cry. Uh, I, I had to yeah. pull over my car because I was crying. Um, yeah. and, and I'm just, and I wasn't even a hundred percent sure I understood why I was crying. Um, but I'm wondering, yeah. when you saw all that, knowing what you already knew, what were your immediate reactions just seeing those people storm the Capitol? Yeah, it's not a facile question at all. It's kind of, I think it gets to this nexus of our um, our, our grief, really, uh, about the state of our politics. And grief is the word. I mean, that's, I think you were experiencing it in the way that a lot of us are on a level that's either announced or, or unannounced, which is that we are... We sense the loss of something profound, and we're trying to figure out what it is. And I was on that day, on January sixth. It was it hit at a very weird time in the writing process. I was at the I was sort of about three quarters of the way through writing this book that I've been working on all these years about how um, this kind of growing sense of um, fury in American politics was taking on this edgy or almost violent form. I just published a piece in the New Yorker before the election called The Violent Style, which was about this new, more sort of overtly um, 
overtly belligerent um, sort of gun-toting politics that Trump had valorized. And then on the day of, I got a call and, and the folks at the New Yorker said, would you go down to the Capitol? It looks like this thing is really turning into a riot. And so I got in the car and I went down and I'm, I'm on my way down and I'm listening in one ear to this kind of live radio feed of what was happening. And I realized in the most despairing way that this was like the final confluence of all of these things that had been building and building and building. And um, in a bizarre way, Colin, I felt when I got there and I sort of started talking to people who were standing at the base of the Capitol, this kind of sacred object of American democracy, watching it, you know, surrounded in, in um, smoke and shouting and the, and the, 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 the real horror of that. Um, what struck me most about it was how banal it felt to so many of them. I mean, the people who said to me, and this was not, they were not young military age males in some cases, they were grandmothers. I mean, these were people who had jobs and regarded themselves as participants in a functioning citizen citizenry. And they had brought themselves there to participate in the most grotesque assault on American democratic culture. And that for me was the most interesting and, and, and startling fact was how did they find themselves doing that? All right. We have to stop there. The book is Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. We've barely scratched the surface. The author is Evan Osnos. I'm warning you, if you start reading this book, it'd be like if you're reading Robert Putnam's book and suddenly mice in bowling shirts started running around your house. <laughs> That's like what's going to happen if you start reading this book. Um, but uh, Evan, as usual, great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks, Colin. All right. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the making of a more humane, quote unquote, humane form of war and whether that makes war a little too easy. Like a bird in flight Back to those hills The place that I call home It's been All right, we're back. Time for me to thank Kat Pastor, technical producer of this show, as usual. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, senior producer emeritus of this show, coming back to uh, produce uh, this terrific episode. Uh, Joining us now is Samuel Moyne, uh, who teaches law and history at Yale. His uh, new book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, the book begins, I don't know, we're kind of on a Tolstoy kick here on the show anyway. He keeps coming up. So here he comes again. Uh, Not necessarily the first person uh, anybody would think of in terms of a critique of the style of modern warfare. Uh, Explain what Tolstoy has to do with your thesis. Well, the great novelist was present at the creation of, of what we now call international humanitarian law. In Geneva in the 1860s, some Swiss gentlemen got together and it asked European states to um, let them take care of wounded soldiers on the battlefield. And they, uh, that was the beginning of a tradition. Tolstoy, in War and Peace, has one of the two main characters of the novel, Prince Andre, say it's a bad idea to make war more humane because it could lead to more war. I don't think he was right at the time, but I'm worried that he's right now 
um, given where Americans have taken war in the last couple of decades. You know, in uh, in Osnos's book, uh, he quotes uh, the writer um, Phil Clay, who's a Marine veteran, who's turned into a very distinguished fiction writer. One of his characters describes the expanding array of American military adventures as, quote, an extension of the same war, not the endless war on terror, but something vaguer, harder to pin down and related to the demands of America's not quite empire. You know, and I thought about that reading your book. There's sort of a sense that if you can get it up, boil it all down to, to drone strikes and other kinds of surgical interventions, it's hard to figure out when war starts, when it stops, what its geography is, what, if it's, what its objectives are. It's just like this kind of background noise. Absolutely. Uh, Phil's a national treasure and he, he wrote, actually wrote a review of this book. And um, I, I've enjoyed talking to him about that sense that he brilliantly portrays in his fiction and other writings. On the other hand, you know, American war has been very big for a very long time. And we could, we, we could get into an argument about when the endless war, forever war that Joe Biden says he's just ended actually began. I think something big happened recently. Whenever you date, you know, uh, whenever, however you think about American war, somehow the the new form of it seems different. Um, the Cold War went on for decades, but it was enormously violent in lots of places, not just for Americans, but more especially for victim communities. And yet, something is new um, in the current form of the war on terror. Barack Obama promise to bring a kind of care to it. And in his Nobel Peace Prize address, he, um, you know, name checked those Swiss gentlemen from the 1860s that Tolstoy denounced Mm -hmm. and said, we're finally bringing their dreams uh, into reality. And so that that's what I'm interested in, not kind of how war is omnipresent, because that's been true for a really long time. But it's in a new it's a new kind of war that is not just less visible, but fought more humanely and under rules. Right. So, oh, I want to talk about that. Actually, we should just play this. This is not the Nobel Prize speech. This is Obama talking to Stephen Colbert, but basically the same idea. Let's hear the C1 cap. The, the problem with the drone program was not that it caused an inordinate amount of civilian casualties, although it, it, even one civilian casualty is tragic. Um, but it actually, the, the drones probably had less collateral damage, which is the antiseptic way of saying it killed people who were innocent and not just targets. Um, probably had less collateral damage than if you send in troops, for example, and you're in a firefight. The problem is, is that it starts giving you the illusion that it is not war. You know, it's so funny to listen to him hear that. The most, I think maybe the most recent time I, I saw Macbeth, um, a production of Macbeth uh, was during his presidency. And I was thinking about this guy. He's a constitutional scholar, you know, uh, and a very, very clearly reasonable man and not somebody you think of as a warmonger. And just in the same sense that at a certain point in Macbeth, you start saying, wow, was he always like this? Or did he just get maneuvered into a situation where he's like this? Mm. I started to think Obama must have moments like that where he thinks this is not who I set out to be. Why am I presiding over extrajudicial executions? Why haven't I been able to close Guantanamo? Why am I not a constitutional scholar while I'm president? React to that. 
I, I love Obama and, and spend a lot of time just kind of watching him meditate on his own actions because he made choices and then was surprised by them, notably when he said, it turns out I'm really good at killing people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he then rationalized it or gave reasons for it in, in public. So he went on Colbert to explain that a Republican might succeed him. No one knew it could be Donald Trump at that point, because it was just at the end of his first term. And then he went and gave this extraordinary speech at the national defense university. This is all in 2013, Mm -hmm. where he says, you, you, you know, that the alternative to my making war more endless and humane is brutal war, but you don't want that. Um, not only will more, more Americans die, more non-Americans will die, as if we didn't have a third option of not having as much war. Um, but then he says in that same speech, you know, having an endless war will change America for the worse. And we don't know how we will degrade ourselves in fighting this new thing that's sort of war and sort of not. And think about what's happened since uh, 2013. I think he was right. So it's a, Obama is just an extraordinary man because he he did the things. He's then the best critic of, of those very acts and, and worries about where the, what they'll do to us as a country. Um, that's a great uh, answer. Um, so there's so much stuff that I want to talk about. I, I feel like maybe it would be interesting for just a moment here, uh, since he just died and there's this, you know, reevaluation of him or, or a recalling of him, to talk a little bit about Colin Powell, who, although he's not a big figure in your book, he participates in so many things that you do write about. I mean, he's actually somewhat involved. Some people would say not entirely purely involved uh, in the initial reaction to, to the My Lai massacre. Then he becomes part of that cohort uh, of generals who really post-Vietnam, you know, have been trained in just war doctrine and they've read St. Augustine and they've read Michael Walzer and they know about proportionality. Uh, and as they do, do the first Iraq in- invasion, Schwarzkopf and Powell are these guys who are saying, no, we're not, you know, we're not warmongers and we're not, we, we really are looking at doing this legally and ethically uh, as much so as possible. And on and on we go until he gets, gets into the Bush administration and gets forever, you know, stained by the speech he winds up giving to the UN. I mean, in a way, all of the stuff that you're writing about in the book, it's interesting how many times Powell pops up as a, a, a participant and not always maybe the kind of participant you would have thought he would have wanted to be. It's a fantastic question. You know, you're right that he he epitomizes a kind of tragedy because he, you know, is the prince of the post-Vietnam officer corps. Even before Obama, he's in power and represents the advancement with an integrated army that African-Americans can make in the country. His central insight in the so-called Powell Doctrine is that the army should never let what happened in Vietnam happen again. But that could mean different things. So for one thing, the military, as I, I discuss in the book, um, for the first time really um, takes the laws of war seriously and, and adopts kind of humane standards in fighting. But remember, the Powell Doctrine wasn't about that. It was about never allowing the military to get sucked into a quagmire. Mm-hmm. And yet what happened after 9-11, leave aside his, you know, what happened at the United Nations and on the weapons of mass destruction, because 
the the real tragedy as i i think that he betrayed the Powell doctrine or he he was led to betray it and the military was sucked into um another multi-decade losing war it's true that it it has been fought more humanely especially once obama got involved but the deeper betrayal was you know uh, was of Powell's original desire to make sure and place constraints on going to war, no matter how cleanly or humanely it was supposedly fought. And so I would say, uh, you know, if I were writing his obituary, that's the tragedy he lived through. But the truth is, it's our tragedy as a country. Right. You know, I mean, in 2003, there are a couple of other ideas floating around. One of them, I think it was Clark Clifford who said, wherever you go, there you are. Uh, you know, and so if we go to Iraq, there we are. And I th- I could be misremembering this, Sam, but I feel like it was Powell who invoked another doctrine, and that was the po- pottery barn doctrine, right? You yeah, break it, exactly. you bought you break it, you bought it. Um, exactly. And, and that ultimately was the truth uh, uh, about Iraq. And, and that was probably truer than some of the other stuff that you just talked about that he kind of in which he kind of betrayed the doctrine that bore his name. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it it, it depends on what you think the pottery barn adage means, because <laughs> um, we 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 have not owned the the destruction we've wrought around the world, especially in these big footprint um, interventions and occupations where we set Afghanistan back and we set uh Iraq and Iraqi is back, even though, of course, the Taliban and, and Saddam were were not good rulers. Uh, the trouble is that we made things worse, even relative to that baseline. I want to focus in the book on like what what we did after we re- we began to realize that that kind of war um, it, it wasn't going to work out. We didn't want to, you know, or we didn't know how. To, to fight it and, and reconstruct those countries and spread democracy in the kind of messianic way that the neoconservatives wanted. Because we didn't stop intervening. Obama invented a new form of war in response and always said, look, you don't want me to be Bush uh, and Powell, you know, well-meaning in the latter case, but ultimately, you know, catastrophic. You, you, you want me to fight this new form of war that kind of edges up to the boundary of war and becomes something like global policing that never ends and just reflects the hierarchies of who can, you know, send the drones out, who can spend, send special forces out with no limits in time or space. Yeah, but I mean, I also feel like you know, there's another phrase that came up a lot: boots on the ground. You know, so yep. and boots on the ground are kind of a bad thing. Usually, it means sure. that that American personnel uh, are in harm's way. I mean, it's a bad thing from a fairly nationalistic or chauvinistic point of view. Um, but the truth is, it's also been very hard to avoid boots on the ground. I mean, we can talk about the use of drones in Afghanistan, but the reality is, there were a lot of boots on the ground, and a Absolutely. lot of a lot of a lot of people died. It wasn't really quite as easy to sterilize war as it might have seemed. Uh, yeah, go ahead. That's true. No, that's true. Um, and I think we've seen that in the succession of three presidents. You know, Obama ran selectively against that form of war, uh, but he couldn't end it and indeed surge in Afghanistan, even as he was completing Bush's withdrawal from 
Iraq. And then Donald Trump ran against Republicans on Iraq, beat them, beat Hillary, just as Obama had done before on on that on that issue and in part. And then Biden ran promising to end the forever war, which he says he's now done. And no doubt in all three of those gentlemen were were struggling to withdraw the from the heavy footprint interventions that their their predecessor George W. Bush uh, had had begun. My, my point is that as difficult as that was, as as impossible as it was to sterilize it, they the the sequel to it has been. Um, a form of war advertised for either involving no boots or few, since we should never forget that alongside drones, which have been ramped up over the uh, decades, special forces have too. Hmm. Um, And in, in, in that second form of the war on terror, which is still going on and which Biden has promised to continue, um, we, we, we do see a kind of achievement. Um, of of a new thing that maybe generations thought couldn't ever exist, which is a way of fighting war that is more like policing, lots of grievous violence, but none for Americans, almost, and much less um, for those um, who are are out in the world under the drones or or expecting visits from special forces. So. Um, I, I'm with you completely that, you know, heavy footprint intervention is very difficult to humanize, but the, the, the sequel to it wasn't peace. It was a, something new, humane war. Yeah, I mean, I just want to back up for a second. First of all, I, I loved your characterization in the book of the 2016 race and how Hillary Clinton's renunciation of the 2003 invasion of Iraq was essentially amounted to we should never invade Iraq in 2003 ever again, uh, and, and as opposed to like turning into some kind of a doctrine. And that Trump right. had this completely bizarre doctrine in the sense that he's what a surprise. But uh, on the one hand, he managed to achieve a pretty compelling critique uh, of the kind of interventionism that was symboled by 2003 to symbolize by 2003 uh, and and saying, you know, we shouldn't do stuff like that anymore. It just isn't in our interest uh, to do that. But he also wanted to reinstitute the kind of hyper cruelty pro torture doctrines uh, of 2003. Uh, I mean, he was sort of like a pacifist uh, and uh, you know a, a war crimes advocate in the same breath. Right. I mean, all three of these presidents were selectively anti-war, and especially with respect to Iraq. Maybe you think you know, given where Biden's taken things with regard to the kind of. The, the heavy footprint interventions after 9-11 in general. But Trump was unique in that he also promised, you know, massive force whenever, you know, he thought it was required. And he promised inhumanity very differently than Obama in the speeches that, you know, we've discussed and one of which you you, you played or um, with with John Stewart, the John Stewart appearance. Um, the, the, the funny thing, though, is that Trump couldn't get that done. He did not um, restore torture as he promised to do on the campaign trail. Uh, And I think the main reason for that is that um, the the expectation of humane war amongst policy elites 
has gotten pretty entrenched. The torture debate happened and it came out one way rather than another. And so when Trump got power, his his own allies, his own staunch allies resisted. Um, and so they, they they did resist, you know, him withdrawing forces, too, as we know. I mean, he couldn't get the Afghan withdrawal done when Biden did, but they really succeeded in keeping him from going back to the dark side um, in making American war brutal um, again with, you know, no constraints from these rules on on drones or on, you know, detainee treatment. Um, this might have to be the last question, so I want to emphasize I'm talking to Samuel Moyne right now. His book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Yeah, the question I have about what you just said is, is it permanent or temporary? I, I think yeah. we, you and I both probably lean temporary. I mean, the the 9-11 precipitated a willingness on the part of large sectors of the American public uh, to do a lot of stuff that even military people were kind of uncomfortable with. Uh, and I, I feel like that, you know, if you look at, I know in the book you talk about the Soleimani uh, execution and how there was at least some real reflection going on uh, in, in the aftermath of that. But I think maybe it's just that we're not mad and crazy enough at the moment. And I think we're going to get mad and crazy again the next time we feel you know, penetrated the way we felt penetrated by 9-11. I think that's right. You know, nothing's permanent. All we can debate in politics is, you know, how how entrenched do things get? And I think this, the, the policymakers who have the most lasting impact you know, aim for for getting consent to things that place them beyond kind of immediate repeal, like Social Security is not ever going to end because FDR understood how to get it kind of so deeply embedded. Um, and I, I personally think humane war is is now a big enough expectation amongst elites, at least, um, that it will be very hard to dislodge. Um, we, we, I think, are seeing some signs, especially because Trump got power, that we don't want presidents to have kind of unilateral authority to go to war, even when they do promise to keep it humane. But we, we kind of lack the tools to claw back that authority. You know, Congress is debating whether to renew the war powers resolution, whether to repeal the authorizations for military force it passed after 9-11. So far, we're kind of awaiting more popular support for those things. Um, if there's a conventional great war with China, um, we, you know, all bets are off. As I show in the book, big wars that are existential tend to be brutal no matter what. But until then, I think we can expect that Americans and the American military will adopt some form of constraining the way we fight even as they keep fighting without constraint on going to war um, right. when presidents order it. It could be that war is going to be a lot like dentistry, which is once they find a way to do it painlessly, nobody's willing to do it any other way. It's just I don't know whether it's humane or or, pain, or, or painless. Uh, and maybe they're, I don't think they're I don't think they're, they're quite the same thing. But Cat Pastor's telling me the show's over anyway. Samuel Moy and I could talk to you much longer about this fascinating book, Humane: How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Now Jesus don't lie. 